children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise, that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Bond servants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart, as you would Christ, not by the way of eye service, as people pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bond servant or is free. Masters, do the same to them and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours in heaven, and that there is no partiality with him. Thank you. When you hear the words, the test came back negative and everything is going to be okay. Or you get the phone call, Mr. Hill, we're pleased to inform you, you've actually won the contest. Or it's our pleasure, as you read, it's our pleasure to tell you that you've been accepted into this school. Or when you sit across from your manager and you hear, we've noticed your work and a promotion's overdue. Good news never comes at a bad time, does it? There's never a time where those kinds of things uh, are tough to hear. They're actually, it's always welcome. Ephesians, the book that we've been reading, is all about good news. But it's better news than a contest that you've won or a school you've been accepted to or test results that may mean you're going to not have so much stress or, or challenge dealing with physical problems over the next few weeks, months, years. The good news in Ephesians is life-altering, eternity-changing. The good news in Ephesians is those that, those that once were dead in their sins have been chosen by God. God has set his love on them to rescue them. The good news in Ephesians is those whom, whom God has loved, he He has sent his son, Jesus Christ, and by Jesus Christ, those that were dead now have been made alive. And he started a good work. The good news in Ephesians is that we have been filled with the Holy Spirit of God. Things are different. This is good news. This is our story. The way it always works in Scripture is there's the story of good news, and then there's commands that follow the story. Don't ever reverse that. It's always a story of good news of God's grace, what God has done. And then God will tell us, this is the way you should live in light of what I have done. There are lots of commands, lots of instructions in Ephesians. So Blake and Patrick talked about some of these. We're told to imitate God. We're told to please the Lord. We're told to walk in love. Walk in a manner worthy of our calling. Walk wisely. Make the best use of the time. Submit to each other. None of those commands earn us any favor with God, but they do show something has changed inside of us. We've been chosen by God. We've been made alive by Jesus. We've been filled with the Holy Spirit. You tell us something has changed. This is how we become who we are. That's been the title of the series. This is how we become who we are. 
Our lives should be reflecting more and more what God has done. And then uh, an important question follows. So if we're told to imitate God and we're told to walk in love and walk in, in a way worthy of our calling, we're told to submit to each other, we're told to please the Lord in everything, a question might come to your mind, exactly how do I do that specifically? And so specifically, how do you imitate God? Specifically, what will it mean Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday for you to please God in what you do? Specifically, what will it mean for you to walk in a, in a manner worthy of your calling? As we hear this, what, what, what does it look like to specifically that we've, we've put off who we once were, we've been renewed in the image after our creator, and we've been, when we put on a, a, a whole new life? What does that specifically mean? We, we actually aren't left wondering. There's instruction that's given kind of generally to the community in chapter 4. But then as Patrick began to open up God's word to us last week, there's specifics in those relationships that are closest to us. The relationship of husband and wife. And this week we're going to unpack more of those relationships. The relationship of children to parents and bond servants to masters might be easy to check out if, if you don't fall into a certain demographic, a certain category. I'm going to ask you not to do that because I actually, I think God's wisdom here is going to apply to all of us. I think there's some of the, some of the instruction in Ephesians 6 that Casey read, some of that will sound very, very similar to just good common sense wisdom, but infused in that is something very different. A difference because of a relationship we have. Maybe the simplest thing is to walk through each of these groups that are, are mentioned. So the, the passage begins with children in verse 1. And the words go something like this, children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. So the children were of a lower rank. They're vulnerable. And there's this basic command, a very normal command. So if we went to Asia, we went to Africa, North America, South America, went to Australia. I mean, wherever you go, generally, generally, for the most part, people are going to say, you know what children ought to do? They ought to do what their parents tell them to do. That's common wisdom. Yet notice there, children obey your parents. There's something different. There's a different relationship accounted for. And that is children obey your parents in the Lord. So I, I think of all the young lives that God's entrusted us with. I think of all the kids that are, are part of our church. Got to see so many of them at Vacation Bible School. I think of the, the bus that's going to load up tomorrow and, t- and take them to children's camp. And I think of all those. What, what does God have to say? It's interesting. God does have something to say to children. And what he says to children is you're, you're to obey your parents. Well, well, that makes sense because really children are in this relationship with their parents, but But there's two relationships, and I I want us to see that again and again. There are two relationships that matter, and one is the relationship the children have with their parents, but children obey your parents. That's not where it stops. It says children obey your parents in the Lord. There's another relationship. There are two relationships that are being talked about here. So children, and there are many, many in our church who are followers of Jesus. One way you show you follow Jesus 
as you obey and you honor your parents. One way you show that you are serving God is you honor your mom and your dad. Ultimately, for children, it's not the parent they're trying to please. Not ultimately. As they obey their parents, they're, they're obeying the Lord. And, and, and Paul says, this is right. This commandment is right. And, and there's a concern for those who are children for doing what is right in God's eyes, not to earn his favor, but because God always does what's right. We want to imitate him. And there's, an, a, there's a promise attached to this. It'll go well with you, a quality of life difference for those who obey, an eternal reward. You'll dwell in the land. All those who are children in this room today and are hearing God speak to you, there will most certainly be times that you don't like, don't agree with, don't understand your parents. But your relationship with your parents might be the greatest indicator of your relationship with God. So I would play these games when... when I was a student growing up. I would think like my relation, I really don't, I wasn't right in my relationship necessarily with my parents. I may have not told them the whole truth or I may have had an attitude that was less than honoring toward them. But I felt like, well, I I still have a a decent relationship with God. And and this kind of makes sure we realize those are intertwined. There are two relationships as, as children obey their parents. There's something else. You see, when children obey their parents, they're, they're showing some things. They're modeling that you can trust someone who's wiser than you. That is ultimately a building block of our own relationship with God. Our lives, whether you're 15 or 85, is lived with a God who's wiser than us. When you obey your parents, you realize that someone loves you, and just because they love you doesn't mean you get everything you want from them. Well, this is Christianity 101. This is relating to God 101. Just because he loves us, it doesn't mean he gives us everything we want immediately. Children, as you obey your parents, as you honor them, you grow in gratitude that someone is really looking out for you. Maybe you feel convicted. And maybe you have just enough independence to feel like you can call a lot of shots in your life. And that's translated into a less than honorable attitude towards your parents. What I would tell you is there's good news because there's a God who forgives children who are rebels, children who disobey. And as we follow Jesus, this is this is what he he tells us. We want to know what does it mean to imitate God? What does it mean to walk in a in a manner worthy of our calling? What does that mean when you're fifteen? What does that mean when you're eight? What does that mean when you're twenty-two? It means this children, obey your parents in the Lord. Then the, the spotlight turns to fathers in verse 4. And I I think even as fathers are addressed, I think it does no injustice to the text to say parents. I do recognize both in their culture and in scripture, there's a premium placed on fathers. So I feel that way even as a father. But I I think this is equally directed and implied at, at parents. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Notice the instruction here. So fathers, this is not the vulnerable position. This is actually the strong position. Even uh, a father and a mother in that day could sell their children into slavery if they wanted to. 
This is a position of power. And notice what, what is called on is, fathers, watch your emotions and watch your handling of the lives entrusted in your care. I think there's two opposite ditches that we could fall into that this is really trying to avoid. And, and one of those would be kind of the, the negative is don't provoke your children to anger. So certainly there's a temptation to just be filled with anger and fall into an abusive situation, whether it be physical or verbal or mental, emotional. And the other, though, th- there is another command to this that kind of balances this out, and that is uh, don't be passive in the whole thing either. So we're told as parents not to provoke our children to anger. Anger has already been recognized in Ephesians 4 as something that like gives a foothold for the devil. It, it has this unique power, especially when you're angry for a long period of time and those outbursts of anger come again and again and again. It destroys things when that anger is expressed in words and attitudes and actions. One of my favorite uh, Writers, John Stott said, parents can easily misuse their authority either by making irritating or unreasonable demands which make no allowances for the inexperience and immaturity of children or by harshness and cruelty at one extreme or favoritism and overindulgence at the other or by humiliating or suppressing them or by those two vindictive weapons, sarcasm and ridicule. Dads and moms. Do we want to imitate God? Then don't provoke our children to anger. It's so easy for me to, like, put it on them. Well, if they just started obeying, then I wouldn't get mad. See how easy that is? They do what I tell them to do, and I don't get mad. But I don't think we, we get the, the privilege here of calling out our own immaturity. I think God calls us to a higher standard. And just give kind of off-road here for a minute and tell you what, a, a word to the wise. I can't tell you how much an apology goes, it, how far it goes in this direction of not making your children, not provoking them to anger. I don't know, sometimes we think like parents should never apologize to their kids for anything. But undoubtedly, undoubtedly, parents are going to sin against their kids. And when we're so filled with pride or so filled with stubbornness or so filled with our own selves that we can't ever recognize and we can't ever say something like this, I was wrong, will you forgive me? There's no excuse for the way I treated you. And when we do that without qualification, you know, I got mad, but if you hadn't, when we, when we stop all that, we just offer an apology And I don't know that you ever outgrow the need to offer an apology and ask for forgiveness. I think some of the most healthy things that could happen today is after this worship service, someone gets in their car and and picks up the cell phone and calls someone who they know they've wronged and God, before God and everybody, you know you've wronged them or you know you've been less than kind and you know you've provoked them to anger and, and how far would it go? How much could you build a bridge to them and say, listen, I am sorry, there's no excuses and I want to be different. And I want to treat you different. I don't think kids are ever too young to hear an apology. And you know what keeps me from that is my stupid, stubborn pride. It says, I I shouldn't have to apologize for anything. I'm sorry goes a long way toward building a bridge. Parents, we need to show grace because we need grace.
We need grace. Stop provoking your children to anger, Paul tells the fathers, parents by extension. There's another side. He says, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. So you do know this, right? Parents, you do know this. You're always bringing your children up in some discipline and instruction. It just may or may not be the Lord's. You're always doing that, either by your absence or your presence, your activity, your passivity. This isn't like, okay, well, I guess it's time to just crack down in the home. The instruction of the Lord means that Jesus is the center. Means life revolves around him. Bring your children up where, where that's the case. Where your worldview starts with a God who made everything perfectly. And sin that wrecked everything. And Jesus who came to redeem. Tell that story. Tell it regularly. Bring them up in that nurture, that discipline, that instruction. The good news is, even as we read, bring them up into discipline and instruction, I'm so grateful it's not a list of like three bazillion things that we have to remember to do. Because the fact is, discipline and instruction looks very different depending on the temperament, the culture, the personality, the child. But here's what we're told to do. Here's what we're told. If we're going to imitate God, this is what we do. This is how we care. We have a loyalty to Christ as Lord. We have a heart that treasures Jesus above all things. And once again, there's two relationships. So I can look at my, my child and there's an obligation there to, to each of my children. And, and I ought to have the right mental and emotional disposition toward them. But I have a relationship with the Lord. And if I treasure him so much, I want the next generation that is coming up in my care, I want them to treasure the Lord. So I think that uh, if, you, if you walk down this hall, you'll see on the wall uh, some words to remind our church family, let's, let's encounter Christ. I think we talk about that as a worship service, as an encounter with Christ. And so I think what, what instruction does it give to your children when everyone is singing or lots of people are singing, but, but you don't? You just kind of mumble along, if, if at all. And the children watch you. You are disciplining them. You are instructing them. But is it in the ways of the Lord? When when you walk down, you'll see a side that says encounter Christ, experience community. But when when church is only like an hour kind of checklist thing, oh, we got to get the kids in church. But it never penetrates to where you have, have friends in the body of Christ that you listen to and you love and you learn from. And you never operate on that level. It is teaching your kids things. I'm just not so sure Christ is at the center of that. You read the words, embrace a calling. And when we live our lives so focused on ourselves and, 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 and imagine the opposite of that where, where children have to wait for their parents because their parents are serving. They've embraced the calling to serve others. And the children, they are learning. They're being instructed. They're being disciplined. Parents, we have a pivotal role in I read, I read verse 4, and it's enough to make me go, Lord, I'm so sorry. Because I have an awesome task and an awesome privilege. It reminds me once again of why I need Christ's grace towards sinners. And why I need the Holy Spirit energizing. Because on my own, I mean, I'm going to provoke them to anger. On my own, I'm going to push them away from Jesus. But it doesn't have to be that way when Christ comes in. 
There's good news for those of us who are sinners who confess and forsake and take a step toward Jesus. There's another group that's instructed here, and that is uh, bond servants. Some translations say slaves. It's a group is addressed in verse 5. I, it's always difficult when you read bond servants or, or slaves because there's such a difference between what was going on in Ephesus in AD 60 and what happened in, let's say, United States of America in 1850s and 60s. So there's a, a very big difference. This slavery wasn't based on race. It wasn't normally permanent, and it didn't shut down economic possibilities. But, but still, slavery in any form, any fashion is always dehumanizing. And Paul knows something. There are going to be slaves that he's going to address. There's going to be a woman living in fear that she may be separated from her, from her children, separated from her husband. There's going to be a, a, maybe a young man who's a slave in, that, in the reading, in the hearing of Ephesians. And, and he's not necessarily thinking how he can overthrow a, 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 an empire or abolish slavery in the whole empire. 60 million people be freed. He's not thinking that. He's thinking like, what does it matter what I do with my life? And so Paul speaks into that. I think a close parallel, it's not identical by, by any stretch, but a close parallel would be, so when we read bond servants and masters, maybe it's helpful to think employees, employers. I think a lot of the principles overlap, and certainly if, if there could be like no worse position than being a slave, then certainly an upgrade for that would be an employee. And so all of what is said to servants would seem to apply well to employees. And here he says common wisdom, right? Bond servants, verse 5, obey your earthly masters. With fear and trembling. And like even people that didn't know God, didn't know Jesus, would go, yeah, that's right. That's what should happen. That's the way the world works. And then he begins to say, but do it with a sincere heart as you would Christ. He highlights these two relationships again. Okay, so you got your master, but there's a master above him. There's a master above her. Your work is done as to Christ. Your obedience is rendered as a slave, not of the earthly master, but of Christ. Your wholehearted service is performed to the Lord. You'll be rewarded by the Lord. There's reverence in all because you live in the presence of God. You're serving Christ. And so I think when, do, do we have that mentality? Do we have this two relationship mentality going on? Do we work like this? Would our bosses say that? Would our coworkers say that we recognize we have an earthly master, we have an earthly boss, we have an earthly manager, supervisor, but we actually are working for a, a, greater, a greater master. And that impacts wholehearted service. Or do we cut corners? Or are there times when we are less than sincere? When we give eye service, so like when the boss is watching... We make sure she sees us doing like lots of great things. When she isn't watching, when he isn't watching, we begin to undermine and complain. This is is just frankly not easy. It's not easy to obey these commands. God gives extra motivation here. He tells us, remember, there is a greater master. There's earthly masters, and then there is the master. And you belong to him. And he can dole out rewards and punishment. If it gets really hard to, to really submit yourself in an environment, in, in a work environment, 
Certainly for those who are employees, I, I guess you can haul off and quit, which solves tons of problems, doesn't it? But, but, but how do you stay in it if quitting's not an option? There's a much longer horizon than your current arrangement. Each and every good thing is seen and it matters. Your heart matters, not merely the externals. And, and ultimately, I love what verse 8 says because it highlights again, with the Lord, it, you'll receive back from Him whether you're a slave or free. So, so what God doesn't have is He doesn't look and go, oh, there's a person in this kind of economic class and here's this person in this economic class. Like, we don't wear those labels. Whether you're slave or free, you have one master, we have one God. And heaven won't be about our, our label that kind of means we're above this group and maybe a little bit below that group. Our actions and our attitudes toward our employers, toward authority over us, they reveal part of what it means to follow Jesus. He addresses masters finally in verse 9. Masters do the same to them. Now that would have been very strange for anybody in Ephesus to hear. So masters, they're told to act in, same, in some of the same ways to their slaves as the slaves were told to act toward their masters. This is a position of power. But the actions and attitudes that are corresponding, even, even as the exact mode of service is not the same, there's something very different. Remember, masters, you're still a slave of Christ. Remember, masters, you're supposed to do the will of God from the heart, just like the slave. Remember, masters, that you are rendering service to the Lord. So quit threatening, quit using your power to abuse or manipulate. Remember, masters, you have two relationships as well. You have a relationship to the bondservant in front of you. The God, for whatever reason, or, or let's say managers or supervisors or employees or presidents or CEOs or vice presidents or office managers, remember, you... You have someone in front of you that is under your authority. Just remember, there's a God who watches. What functions as an encouragement to those that are bond servants is almost a threat. Even as Paul says, you quit, you're threatening, because here is the real threat. Because you're accountable to God. The relationship that you have with those who you temporarily have power over, that, that will end one day. And you'll answer to God. There's a greater master who can dole out rewards and punishment. There's a much longer horizon than the title on your business card or the desk that makes you feel important. So treat everyone with equal value. I, I would think lots of, lots of people in our church have some measure of authority over others' lives. Are you using it wisely? Are others blessed? Here's just a simple question. Are others blessed because you're the boss? Do others benefit from that? Is it pretty clear like the way you use your authority is exactly the godly way God would have you use it? Does it reflect something of how God wields his authority always for the good of others? Where do you need to seek God's help to make changes? There's such a bigger picture, isn't, isn't there? See, I, I want to think I live in just all these relationships and I'm talking to one person in front of me or dealing with this person or that person or this relationship, that relationship. And now the windows are open and we realize whenever you have a person in front of you, there's actually another person right behind that and that is the Lord. That is God. 
And all of our actions really embody these two relationships. The person in front of you. You serve them in love. You ask the Lord for wisdom because you're representing God to them. And another God watches this. We get these big commands to imitate God and please the Lord and walk in love. And what does that mean? Well, hopefully today, got some light has been, light has been kind of shine on some very, very ordinary relationships that could be greatly impacted by extraordinary truth of two relationships, one with this person and one with God. Can we pray and ask the Lord for his help today? Father, it's clear you want us to be more than just a a little bit better dads and moms, a little bit better employees. You want us to represent you. And for that, we say, how in the world could we do that if you don't help us? Lord, make us uh, alive through Jesus. Let us shine as lights in this world. You're the only one who can keep us from making a, a total mess of our lives. You're the only one who can keep us from falling. So as we sing this prayer to you, help us to do so from the heart. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen.